right. Good deal. Good morning once again. You guys who are here with us in person, we're glad that you're here. Those of you who join us by live stream, uh, we're glad that you're here. Well, we are in the season of Lent right now, just a few weeks until um, Easter Sunday coming up. And so what we're doing this morning is we're putting our current series on pause entitled Not in God's Name, where we've been studying through a great work book by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. We'll be back to that uh, shortly, but we just want to do um, a little bit here with Lent and leading up to Good Friday, um, the cross of Christ, and then, of course, the great celebration of the year for, uh, for us being Easter Sunday. So here's, here's a title, The Good News and the Cross for a couple of weeks here. Um, for this morning, here's an overarching question. What makes Good Friday good? I mean, it was a Roman crucifixion. It was done for the purpose of, um, well, ultimately execution, of course, but, but also its point was, to, was for Rome to flex its muscles of power and domination over uh, the people over which it dominated, not just in Palestine, but throughout the Roman Empire at the time. It was done for um, humiliation, to prove and to demonstrate for everyone looking on that if you mess with the authority of Rome, this is what happens to you. And so question, what makes Good Friday good? Um, you know, you think about this. Now, you know, for us as Christians, we have this message that we refer to as the gospel. It's, a, it's an old English word that means good news. Um, and so our message as Christians is, hey, world, we have good news. And oh, by the way, there's a Roman crucifixion in the center of it. Like, how does that work? What is the connection uh, between, hey, I have good news and this ignominious, unjust crucifixion right in the middle of it? How does that work? There is a death announcement in the middle of our good news. How is it, to state it another way, how is it that this death, the death of Jesus Christ, fits within our announcement that is ultimately good news. I want to become a little bit autobiographical uh, for a moment and tell you what my answer to that question was. Thank you, Matt. Exactly what I was thinking. Uh, I want to tell you what my answer was then, that is for, you know, most of my life. Um, and then the bulk of our time this morning will be sent with, spent with um, a better answer. <laughs> And that would be my answer now. Um, so, so here's what my answer would have been. Um, what's the connection between this good news of ours and this execution of crisis in their center? It would be something like this. Um, okay, here's the good news, uh, world. Uh, despite our many sins, we can be forgiven by God through faith, through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. And by the way, this is so because, and this is the Good Friday part, um, because Jesus took our place. He paid the price that God demanded for our sin. So now through faith alone, through only faith in Christ, um, we can be forgiven by God because of Good Friday. That would have been my answer, something like that. Um, 
and for those of you who want the 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 nerd translation of that um what i just said was a kind of in common speech a combination of uh what we get from the apostle paul the doctrine of justification by faith tightly interwoven with the idea of of uh substitutionary atonement theory i would have given and i wouldn't have used those terms at all but, but that's essentially what I just said. It's a combination of the doctrine of justification by faith as the good news, coupled with or made possible because of the idea or the motif or the theory of substitutionary atonement. That's what I would have said because that's what I had been taught for all my life, both growing up in church uh, and indeed all the way through seminary. That's the imagery that's woven into much of our, our rhetoric within at least within evangelical Christianity for sure, and, and not just evangelical, but beyond, but that's my world. Uh, that's the, the idea that's woven into our, our music, our songs that we sing, the idea of payment of price or taking my place and all that kind of thing. And so that's what I would have said. Um, but later, as I continued to journey, I began to experience some nagging questions. Um, some stubborn questions that wouldn't, I guess, wouldn't leave me alone. Um, questions like this. Okay, Mr. Good News Man, talking to me, Mr. Gospel Man. Uh, so question, did Jesus preach the gospel? If that's, if that's my answer to what the gospel is, then the question is, did Jesus preach the gospel? Because here's the deal. Jesus thinks he preached the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all think Jesus preached the gospel. That's what they said. He went about preaching the good news. That's what they say. So the question is, do we find anything like what I said the gospel is? Do we find anything like that in anything that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John have to say? And the answer is no. Another nagging question. Okay, Mr. Gospel Man, somebody asked you what the gospel is. That's what you say. This combination of justification by faith interwoven with the idea of substitutionary atonement. And so here's the second nagging question. How did the Apostle Paul himself define the gospel? And did he do so in a way that's consistent or similar or identical to what you, Mr. Gospel Man, say? Here's the answer to that, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn uh, received in which also you stand through which you also are being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you unless you have come to believe in vain verse 3 for I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received here it is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and so here's the apostle paul reminding the believers at corinth here's the gospel that i gospeled to you and that's the way it comes across in the original language a uh, gospel is a, both a verb and i guess a noun the gospel that i gospeled to you uh, and so essentially what the apostle paul does is he puts these and here's what my, my emphasis is going to be the rest of the day today he puts the emphasis on these facts these happenings he puts the emphasis on what actually happened. Christ died for our sins in accordance 
with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice, if you please, that when Paul himself delineates what the gospel is, he is essentially telling the story of what happened. Whereas in contrast, my answer to the question, what is the good news, would have been more or less trying to explain these concepts, these spiritual concepts, right? And so that became a problem for me. And then the third angle, which I've already kind of suggested, um, is this. If you notice in your New Testament, the first four books, we call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you look closely at what the names of those four books are, they are actually the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John, the good news according to John, the good news according to, and so on. You see what I'm saying? So these are the nagging questions that just really, you know, stubborn, wouldn't go away, wouldn't leave me alone. And I thought, man, there's a, there's a real disconnect here that I need to deal with. And so that's, that's the autobiographical part um, of this presentation. These questions to me uh, were sufficiently, mm, I don't know, um, troublesome that you know, they couldn't just be left alone, that we had to look further. And lo and behold, um, when you get out beyond our little evangelical ghetto, uh, you find that there are much better answers to the question. And so I present that to you today. Here you go. Let me say it this way then. Here would be my answer now. Here is the gospel restated. It is a condensed statement. We're going to read it and then we're going to go through it step by step. Here it is. The gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ revealed to us the true nature, character, and heart of God for the transformation of the world and everything in it. And he did this through both his deeds and his words. He was killed by the powers and he was vindicated by God. Now, let's tease that out a little bit. It's obviously compressed, condensed, and so we're going to tease it out. What do we mean? Jesus revealed the true nature of God, the heart of God for the healing of the world, and the transformation of everything in it. He did this through both his teaching and his life. What did Jesus reveal about, now we're talking about, this is what Matthew means when he says the, good, the gospel of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to John. What he's saying is this in Jesus Christ is the full self-revelation of God. What did Jesus reveal about the nature of God, about the healing agenda of God? Well, you know that list. Love your enemies, turn the other cheek, embrace the outcast, heal the sick, feed the hungry. Jesus forgave the unforgivable. He accepted and embraced the unacceptable, the unembraceable, at least according to religious norms of his time. He gave dignity to the down and out. He challenged and confronted the high and mighty. He took the side of the underdog every time. He stepped across the line of exclusion and stood in solidarity with the stigmatized, the marginalized, etc. He reminded us that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus handed out forgiveness like Jordan River water, right? He enjoyed this free-flowing, rich, and real-time intimacy with the Father, and he taught that every single other person can enjoy the same intimacy with God. Father, may they be one as you and I are one, right? So you, you know the list. You think about the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to take some time later and kind of flesh this out for yourself, just 
just just meditate through the Sermon on the Mount. This is a good compressed summary of Jesus' teaching and vision for a transform transform world that we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' manifesto for a healing revolution. Another kind of handy go-to um, if you want something to grab onto to kind of keep you know keep your your uh, bearings in this. Um, Jesus, over and over again, he gives this single phrase which constitutes a concise summary of what it is that he's talking about, what it is that he's dreaming of when he talks about the kingdom of God. He kept on saying it. There's a new normal that is available to us. He called it the kingdom of God. It's like, it's like embracing the new normal that the world would be if God were truly king. And in any realm, of course, um, the nature of the king determines the nature of the realm, right? And so Jesus said, okay, the world is God's realm, and this is what God is really like. And so this is how we now go about functioning in God's realm, which is the entire world. And he said, he even said, that this new normal, this new way, this kingdom of God, he said, it's within you. It's within you. It's among you. It's available to you, and it is within you. It's not foreign to you. It's actually within you. It is your native tongue, Jesus said, the kingdom of God. This is your actually your most authentic self, your natural self. In a word, or list of words, Jesus, Jesus revealed God as love. That's what the apostle John would say later. Jesus revealed God as love. He revealed God as grace. He revealed God as mercy, as peace, as servanthood. So this is the revelation of God in and through the person of Jesus Christ. This is what he did. This is what he said. And quite naturally, the masses of people, by and large, uh, were delighted to hear and encounter what Jesus was saying and doing. Why? Well, because if you're hungry, then being fed is good news, right? Uh, if you're outcast, then being welcomed in is good news. If, if, you, if you have been stigmatized and marginalized by the religious community and, and otherwise, then, then this embrace by this rabbi is good news. If you've been heavily burdened by impossible religious demands, then Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God as grace, as within you, as Ah, this is good news. If you're down and out, Jesus is very good news. If you are the underdog, then Jesus' message is very good news. But, and here's where we turn the corner, there were others who heard all of this, very same message, and they heard it in a very different way. They heard it through a very different filter. And so this is where we get to the next phrase of our condensed statement. It's this, Jesus was killed by the powers. This is Good Friday. See, all of this great news for the underdogs, this is actually bad news for the overdogs, right? Good news for the one on the bottom is actually interpreted as a threat for the one on the top, right? And so that's the way many heard Jesus' message. And so the powers that be, as we say, conspired together to arrest Jesus, put a stop to his movement and his vision for a transformed world, and they aim to put a stop to it all by killing him. In this case, those powers were 
the Roman occupiers of Israel, together with the Jewish religious leadership, you know, establishment. And we would also probably include King Herod in that mix, as apparently, historically speaking, primarily his interest was an economic one. Um, see, they saw that if Jesus' vision were to really catch on widely enough, then all of them would be out of a job, <laughs> essentially. Um, their positions of privilege would essentially be nullified, right? Because think about it. If, 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 if God is really king, then Caesar is not king. And there goes Pilate's spot, his position. If, as I said before, if union with God is handed out like Jordan River water as freely as Jesus, in fact, handed it out, then that means the whole temple apparatus is essentially irrelevant and poof. There goes the position and standing and relevance in the world of the Jewish religious establishment crowd. If, if the hungry are really fed without a quid pro quo, as Jesus both taught and demonstrated, then that has economic implications on Herod, among other things. And so the powers did what the powers do, and that is they exerted their power and unleashed it as violence against Jesus, and they killed him in the most public and humiliating way possible. And that, for them, means crucifixion. In effect, the powers were declaring, we are right, you are wrong, you are weak, we are strong, the world is the way it is because this is how the world is supposed to be, and it's going to stay this way. Your vision is wrong, and you will die in shame, and your vision will die in shame with you. You can talk all you want about love, 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 but we're telling you the world is run by power. From the perspective of Pilate and Rome, the Jewish leadership, and Herod, this is what Good Friday demonstrates and declares, shouts and screams. Just like the, the white witch said in C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, so much for love. And even, and even as they humiliated him, tortured him, and ultimately killed him, all he did was love them. He didn't retaliate against the injustice of his torture and execution. No, instead, he forgave them in real time. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, he said. He lived his vision to the very end. All that stuff he said in the Sermon on the Mount, that wasn't just blowing smoke. That was a battle plan. He loved his enemies. He turned the other cheek. He forgave the seemingly unforgivable. And finally there on Friday evening of that day, he breathed his last. Good Friday was a confrontation of the love of power against the power of love. And at least as of Friday evening, all of the evidence made it absolutely clear that the love of power had won the day over the power of love, just as it always had before.
So that's Good Friday. Now back to our condensed summary statement, the next phrase. He was killed by the powers, and he was vindicated by God. That's Easter. As you know, the crucifixion, um, the story doesn't end, that is, with the crucifixion on Good Friday. Oh, no, on the third day, Sunday morning, Easter came, and God raised Christ from the dead. And with his resurrection from the dead also comes his vindication by God. What do we mean by vindication? What we mean is Easter, Easter declares, insists, proclaims that Jesus was right, that his vision was right. Yes, in fact, love really is the only thing that's credible in the world. Yes, in fact, enemy love and non-retaliation really is, really are, the true nature of God. Yes, in fact, God really is embracing the outcast. This is not just a rogue rabbi on his own. No, no, no. This is the full self-revelation of God. He is embracing the outcast. In fact, it's true. This free-flowing, rich and real-time intimacy with God really is readily available. The kingdom really is not only among us, around us, breaking in upon us, but the kingdom of God really is within us. God really is on the side of the poor. He really is with and for the underdog, the downtrodden, the down and out, the stigmatized and the marginalized. Yes, God really is on their side. Yes, Jesus' new normal, his kingdom vision really is the kingdom of God. It's not just a pipe dream. It is really and truly God's dream, God's vision, God's program for healing and transforming the world. Resurrection means Jesus was right, right? This is what the early church for, you know, first couple of centuries would, would grapple with and work out, which eventually becomes what we know of as the doctrine of Trinity. And in that standpoint, and I'd be okay if you want to say this, if somebody wanted to say, you know what the good news is? The good news is Trinity. Because what you're saying is the good news is what the early church worked out. <gasps> We've encountered God in this person, in Jesus Christ. We've encountered God. Could it really be that good? And they boldly said, yes. And so if you wanted to say, I'd be completely okay if you want to say it. The good news is Trinity, that Jesus really is the full self-revelation of God. God really is that good. See, good news of great joy for all the people really is God's good news, right? All the way back to what we know of as the Christmas story. Peace on earth, goodwill toward humankind, right? Really is God's announcement to all creation. Jesus was vindicated by God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus fully revealed the heart and character of God, scandalously gracious, liberally forgiving, self-emptying love, non-retaliation, even against injustice. And he was killed by the powers, and he was vindicated by God. That is the gospel. Now, that's a way of saying it. I'm not saying there's only one way to say it, but that is the gospel. That's kind of my way of rehashing what we see from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. What's the gospel? It's a story. It's what happened. The good news is actu what actually happened. And so now let's have some fun for our last few minutes together. Um, okay, so that's what happened. Now, here's what you and I both know. There are a thousand ways of talking about this. There are a thousand different ways 
of talking about this. Many people before us, and certainly there'll be many after us, have described what happened, that is the gospel, the good news, in many different ways. Here's the way I have it um, on my notes and your notes. Writers, preachers, and theologians have used a variety of word pictures, analogies, and metaphors in the attempt to bring to life various aspects and implications of the gospel in the hearts and minds and lives of people all around the world for 2,000 years now. Most of of these descriptions are good and helpful in different ways. Now, I say all this, many of you are familiar, here's an example, many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we'll have a chance to talk about this, because it's a, it's a friendly way to bring us into this conversation. And C.S. Lewis wrote The Lion, the, Rich, and the, the, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, he knowingly brought his readers into this historic conversation that we're actually having here today, the story of Aslan, if you're familiar with this story. Um, and especially the, the scene at the stone table. It is, of course, an allegory of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And with the, his particular presentation of Aslan and the stone table in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis has actually knowingly and purposefully um, brought his audience into this very long-running historic conversation. And so all of that brings us to this subject that's commonly um, designated uh, as atonement theories. There are a variety of ways of thinking about the meaning of the cross, the meaning of Good Friday, and collectively these different ideas and motifs are known as atonement theories. Now, this word in itself actually presents us with an early stage challenge that we, I think, feel that we've got to deal with before we even move any further in this conversation. And here's the reason why. The English word atonement is actually a made-up word that was created, many say, and I'm comfortable with this, we find out it's not accurate, it doesn't really matter, but many say this word was created by uh, William Tyndale, who was the first person to, to translate the Bible into English, and he came across this Greek language concept, and he couldn't. there wasn't an English word for it, and so he made one up. I'm a fan of that. I love that. You just make up a word, right? And so what he did is he took the two English words, at one, and put them together and made the word atone, at one, or atonement, at one meant becomes atonement, right? Okay, so here's why that history is important, Uh, because today in our contemporary English usage, the word atone connotes for us the idea of payback or getting even or balancing the scales, right? And so you're thinking about the Western cowboy with the big, long six-shooter and somebody's done something wrong to somebody he loves or likes and said, okay, they're gonna, I'm going to go get them and they're going to atone for their sin. You know, what he means, he's going to put a bullet in them, right? So he means balancing the scale. Well, well the reason for pointing, pointing that out is that the word itself doesn't convey the means by which at one is achieved. It doesn't, it, the word itself doesn't convey some kind of payback or evening the scales or retribution. The word itself at one just means at oneness has been reestablished or has been achieved 
or, you know, um, captured, right? And so my point there is when we encounter this word atonement theories, it's important for us modern English speakers to realize we're not, we're not implying the idea of evening the scales or retribution or payback. We're just implying what we're saying is these are theories about how it is that we have been made at one with God, okay? So atonement, we need to talk about it. And I want to move like ripples in a pond uh, with you, if you can think about it like this. I want to talk with you about the fact of atonement, and then kind of next ripple out, I want to talk with you a little bit about images of atonement or metaphors of atonement, and then a third layer out from that would be theories or motifs of atonement. So what we mean by fact of atonement, that, that central dropping the rock in the pond is the fact, what actually happened. We have been made at one with God. That's the fact. That's what actually happened. And then that next ripple, talking images, and that is to say the Bible uses many images, word pictures, metaphors that highlight and illuminate various aspects and implications of what God has done in and through Christ. And here's just a list of a handful of them, a serpent on a pole, conveys the idea essentially of healing. It's from John 3. In the same way, Jesus speaking, in the same way that Moses lifted the serpent in the desert so people could have something to see and then believe, it's necessary for the Son of Man to be lifted up and everyone who looks up to him trusting and expectant will gain a real life, eternal life. And so here Jesus is referring to the events uh, of the Exodus where the people were, you know, plagued with disease and Moses held up a serpent on the pole and when people turned and looked at the serpent on the pole, they were healed of their disease. And he's saying that his crucifixion is in some way going to function in that way. Those who look to me and my sacrificial giving my life away, there's a healing there that comes to us through that. It's a deep and beautiful um, image. And I said this before, but for the early church, man, when you go back and read the early church fathers, um, the, you know, like today, unfortunately, our sort of, like when we're thinking about these spiritual issues and faith and all that, for us, it's so much about guilt, right? Like the big problem is guilt. And so what we need, what we need, what we need is like, you know, God's forgiveness to deal with guilt. Um, but in the first centuries, in the earliest centuries of the church, that wasn't the big, that wasn't the big core issue. The big core issue for the church fathers is that we are diseased and what we need is healing. And that's a very different kind of, that's a different atmosphere to inhabit, you know, in your inner life. And so this serpent on the pole image was really big in the early centuries of the church for that reason. Uh, a second idea, new covenant, conveying this idea of union with God, Luke 22 um, he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant, like, like this is God's covenant with you. He is linked to you in union and solidarity. And then this idea of ransom, which we'll talk more uh, about in a moment. Ransom has to do with Freedom, manumission, emancipation. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
right? So this, this is just a, a sample of the images, word pictures, and metaphors that the New Testament writers give us for helping to understand various aspects of the meaning of the cross. And there's a lot more, and we're going to talk about some in just a moment. But that's kind of the second ripple. And then the third ripple in the pond we're saying could be these atonement theories or entire kind of narratives or storylines that we create to kind of connect all the historical facts that actually happen. And so what we mean by theory or atonement theory is various writers, teachers, and theologians have created a number of these models or schemes or storylines in the attempt to explain precisely how it is that God has made us at one with himself in and through Christ. So you got the facts, you got images, word pictures, and metaphors, and then you've got out wide from that theories, atonement theories. Now, with those three ripples in mind, let me make a few suggestions that I think are helpful. The first is this, an image or a theory is not the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is what actually happened. That's the gospel. We've got to hold on to that and don't let go. The second is this. An image or theory cannot save, cannot heal, cannot transform us. It is God who saves us, heals us, transforms us by his spirit through Jesus Christ. Is everybody tracking? These are important things to hold on to. Here's the third one. An image or a theory can be very helpful in drawing us further into God's transformational life in and through Christ. An image or theory can be very helpful. No question about it. But here's the backside of that, the other side of that. All theories and metaphors have their strengths and their weaknesses. Most of them contain both helpful guidance as well as unintended implications. And that was probably implications that we draw. That, you know, I'm thinking of the metaphors. Like, like in the ransom theory, we're going to break it down in just a moment. But in the ransom metaphor, the unintended implications are actually invented by us, not by the metaphor itself. There's nothing wrong with the metaphor. It's fine. But when we try to make that metaphor do more work, more jobs than it was intended to do, then we create a mess. And I'll go further into that. Well, we're going to do it right now. So ransom theory, let's talk about it. Okay, this was uh, really the earliest atonement theory in the early centuries of the church. It was by far and away the most common way that the early church fathers thought about and talked about and wrote about the meaning of the death of Christ. These are from theologians like Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine even, later in the 300s. Um, and essentially, the ransom theory goes like this. Humanity was in bondage to the devil, kidnapped, held hostage by the devil. And so, God offered the life of Christ as a ransom price paid to the devil in exchange. And in exchange, the devil had to uh, allow humanity to go free. Right, But then what Satan didn't count on was that he had actually received God into death in the person of Jesus Christ. He had received divinity into death, and death, of course, cannot hold divinity, and so Easter. God was raised 
to life on Easter. So that's the ransom theory. And this entire theory, as you can sense, was put together from that single word image, word picture used in Mark chapter 10. I came to give away, give my life as a ransom for many. The early church fathers and thinkers took that one word and created this entire narrative. Whereas in context, if you go back and read Mark 10, you can do that for extra credit after class. But what Jesus is actually saying, he's actually refuting the idea among his uh, disciples who are, they're talking about who's going to be the best, who's going to be the top, who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand when his kingdom finally comes. I mean, they got this whole thing and they're all competing to be top dog in the future regime of Jesus. You know, that's what they're thinking. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. It's, 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 it's out there in the, it's, it's in the, the tragic normal that people rule it over, lord it over one another. In, in, in the kingdom, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. And he says, after all, look at me. I came to give my life away as a ransom for many. And so to take that phrase and say, oh, that's, that's a way to view Good Friday, that's true. But realize that when Jesus actually made the statement, he's talking about his entire life, every day, every moment of every day. He's given away his life, his energy, his time, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his action to create liberty and freedom in the lives of other people. That's what he means with the ransom, what's called the ransom saying. And yet, nevertheless, uh, these early church thinkers took that metaphor and created this entire narrative for understanding Good Friday and Easter. Now, pros and cons. In support of the ransom theory is that the ransom theory avoids the suggestion of divine appeasement. That is, in other words, appeasement assumes that the moral scales of the universe have to be balanced somehow. Evil must be repaid. Wrongs must be punished before they can be righted. That is the logic of appeasement. That's the logic of retribution. This is the logic of quid pro quo. This is the logic of ungrace. Back to C.S. Lewis. This is the logic of the white witch in the story, right? Right there at the scene where she's about to plunge the knife into Aslan. She says, tonight the deep magic will be appeased. That's the logic of the white witch. In other words, it is the logic of our spiritual enemy. Appeasement. In the ransom theory, in favor of the ransom theory, there is no suggestion that the death of Christ was required by God in order to placate God somehow or in order to satisfy God in some way so that God could then forgive or save humanity. None of that is there in the ransom theory, and this is in favor. This is a, uh, something positive about the ransom theory. Unfortunately, later theories came perilously close to suggesting exactly that, that the death of Christ was really some form of divine appeasement, like a, that God had to be paid in order to forgive or save humanity. That's unfortunate to say the least. And so, uh, so the ransom theory has in favor of it that there's no appeasement, you know, wired, wired into it. Okay. Um, unfortunately, uh, what's on the not to the complement of the ransom theory, um, is that it gives too much status to the devil. Uh, the ransom theory seems to belittle God and suggest that God needed to negotiate with the devil, right? And this becomes problematic. And this is actually what caused the church to kind of slowly migrate away 
from the ransom theory, and you can find this kind of chasing, tracing through um, the history of the theology of the church, the ransom theory just sort of loses its mustard um, because of this very reason. It's probably a healthy shift, right, away from this kind of giving primacy to Satan in the whole narrative. Um, but again, here's the thing. Jesus really did give away his life to offer freedom to others. That's true. The ransom saying is there. He said it. He came to give away his life as a ransom for many. That's what Mark 10 is actually saying. And so, again, he means his entire life um, as a ransom, as a manumission price to provide liberty and freedom to others. The problem comes in when we take that metaphor and try to push it further than it actually goes. And we try to make that metaphor do more jobs than the job that Jesus himself gave it to do, right? Um, Jesus gave away his life as a manumission for others. That's fantastic. Yeah. But to whom was the manumission price saved, uh, paid? See, that's where we get into problems, right? So when you start having that theoretical, you go beyond the metaphor and take the next step and say, well, then this has to be, then there has to be somebody that the price was paid to. No, there doesn't. He just said, he just said, I, I came to give away my life as a ransom. I came to invest my heart, soul, blood, guts, sweat, everything into the freedom of others. That's all you need to know. We didn't have to theorize and go, yeah, okay, but, but yeah, Jesus gave his life as a manumission price for the freedom of others. Who did he pay the price to? We didn't have to go there. But when we went there, that's when we got into problems, right? So again, back to, back to C.S. Lewis. In his writings, the white witch, she assumed that the bedrock, the deep magic, was appeasement, assuming that the moral scales of the universe have to be balance somehow, that evil must be repaid, that wrongs must be punished before they can be righted. That is the logic of appeasement. It's the logic of retribution. It's the logic of the white witch. It is the logic of our spiritual enemy. And then, of course, it's great if you read that or seen the, the movie when Lewis's Aslan explains that the deep magic that the white witch is referring to is not the deepest magic. He says there is a deeper magic. There's a magic that's deeper than the logic of retribution, the logic of appeasement, and it's not the logic of the quid pro quo. Actually, the deeper magic is actually the heart of God. The bedrock of the universe is, in fact, the logic of self-giving, enemy-loving, other-oriented, gratuitous love that's the logic that is non-logic from our perspective of course it's the logic of this generative sacrificial self-emptying love in a word the deepest magic is the transrational <laughs> that we call grace that's the deepest magic so all of this comes from a conversation on the ransom theory Moving forward, historically, uh, the ransom theory had its heyday in the, in the earliest centuries of the church. And then when we get around to the turn of the first millennium, we arrive at what's commonly called the satisfaction theory. And this is a motif that was created by um, uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury, a very important leader in the church there in the Middle Ages. He wrote a book 
called cur deus homo, with a question mark, which is commonly from the Latin there, translated into English as why the God-man. Now, Anselm, he wrote this book. It's not a Bible study. He didn't write this book to, to be a theological treatment of uh, the meaning of the cross. That wasn't his aim. Actually, his purpose was to write a, an apologetic that could be used to help Christians in dialogue with Muslims. And the, and the primary objection to uh, Muslims in believing in Christ was uh, they objected that Jesus could be divine. These Christians are claiming that Jesus is the divine son of God, and Muslims object to that out of hand. So that's where Anselm's title comes from, Why the God-Man. So he, he intended to write not a Bible study, but a logical apologetic for why it is or how it could be so that Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. And along the way, Anselm creates this motif or this atonement theory, this idea to elaborate upon the meaning of the cross. And here's basically what Anselm said. Humanity has offended the honor of God by our disobedience, and God's honor must be satisfied. And so through his perfectly obedient life, Jesus, and his subsequent death, Jesus satisfies God's demand for justice uh, and to have his offended honor be restored. And Jesus could do this because he lived a perfectly sin sinless life and therefore he could be the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's offended honor. And so now our debt to God can, uh, has been repaid through Christ's, what he called his surplus of merit uh, that Christ had stored up through his sinless life and full sacrifice to God. And so Christ, our substitute, he is our substitute, and he repays God on our behalf instead of us repaying God, you know, for ourselves. That's, that's Anselm's theory. Uh, now, again, Anselm wasn't writing a Bible study. He was writing a, a logical, basically an apologetic for um, the full divinity of Christ, and you, you're probably familiar with these ideas, as even as I sort of try to summarize here, because this was a wildly successful work of theology. Anselm's book, Curdeus Omo, it became an instant hit uh, throughout the church. Now, pros and cons of the satisfaction theory. Well, in favor of the satisfaction theory, um, we can say this: it is. Um, logical. It's almost mathematically precise in its reasoning, the way Anselm walks through the argument. We could also say this, the satisfaction theory successfully avoids depicting God as negotiating with the devil. Um, in fact, if you'll notice, in Anselm's, theory, in Anselm's theory of the meaning of the cross, the devil is nowhere in the narrative, which, which again, I, I want to suggest is one of the initial um, aspects that tips us off where Anselm was mistaken in his reasoning because Paul can't talk about the cross without talking about the devil. Um, so, but Anselm could. Um, and then thirdly, the satisfaction theory evokes a sense of confidence in God's acceptance and forgiveness of sinners. There's something about this quid pro quo construct that's created by the satisfaction theory that sort of yields a sense of confidence in our forgivability 
by God because of Christ's sacrifice. Um, now, on the flip side, what are some of the unfortunate, unintended consequences of the satisfaction theory? Well, you already know where this is going. Satisfaction theory implicitly assumes, I must say it bluntly, that the problem being solved on Good Friday is God himself. Notice now, we've done a full 180 degree turn since the ransom theory. In that theory, the life of Jesus was paid to Satan. But with Anselm's satisfaction theory, the life of Jesus is a price paid to God. It's a totally, these two ideas, these two atonement motifs are mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. And what I want you to notice here is that, and yet, under each theory, thousands, you know, lots and lots of people were brought to faith in God through Christ, through these theories, which can't be, both of them can't be theologically accurate. They are 180 degrees apart. They are mutually exclusive. Satisfaction theory, I want to say in addition, belittles the character of God by betraying him as an offended deity. This is another one of Anselm's core mistakes. He betrayed God like, a, like an offended uh, lord in, under medieval, you know, European medieval culture. My honor has been defeated, uh, been offended and I must be satisfied. Right? Like that's how Anselm portrayed God. Because that's what Anselm was surrounded by in his culture. That's, you know, that's the structure that ruled the realm in Anselm's day was this whole network of feudal lords, you know, and if one of them has their honor offended, then there's going to be a duel, you know, kind of thing. And so that's the way Anselm depicted God. Um, and many have come along after Anselm and said, you know, ultimately that's kind of a belittling of God. Um, here's the next kind of unfortunate, unintended consequence. Satisfaction theory subtly suggests that God is unwilling or unable to forgive unless and until some condition is met, right? Like as soon as I get my pound of flesh, then I can forgive, right? So Anselm just basically assumes that to be the case, um, despite the fact that we're never, we're never given that in Holy Scripture. Uh, here, and finally, um, we could say that satisfaction theory suggests that God's disposition toward humanity was changed away from us by our disobedience and then changed again toward us by Christ's obedience and suffering and death. And this is, again, simply not so. God has never uh, turned away from you or from humanity. So this is satisfaction theory. Now, moving forward a little bit more in, in history, now we move forward roughly 500 years more. And we come to what's known as the penal substitution theory, um, not exclusively, but popularized primarily by John Calvin. Um, so, and here's basically how penal substitution theory works. It works like this. God's justice demand demands that human disobedience must be punished. And so Christ was punished, that's the penal part, for our disobedience. He suffered and died in our place on our behalf. That's the substitution part. Christ then has absorbed God's rightful wrath against our sinfulness. And so now God can extend grace toward us who place our faith in Christ. In many ways, the penal substitution theory 
is, a, is building upon the work of Anselm with the satisfaction theory where Calvin brings forward the ideas of punishment uh, and of God's wrath being satisfied by the death of Christ. And so Calvin basically is taking the work of Anselm and, and pushing it further, um, taking additional steps. Okay, so, uh, and this is where um, it's under penal substitution theory that the actual physical suffering of Christ on Good Friday takes on theological meaning because it is the suffering of Christ that constitutes God being satisfied, his, his rightful wrath against our sin being poured out on Christ. And so that's why in a movie like, um, uh, what, was the, what was the Mel Gibson movie? Yeah, The Passion of Christ. That's why there's blood everywhere. When you watch The Passion of the Christ and there's just oodles and oodles of blood everywhere. Why? It's because of the theology of this particular atonement theory that makes all of that writhing agony and pain have like theological uh, significance. In contrast, again, I would encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all, of course, describe, uh, they all cover Good Friday, but the Gospels themselves are remarkably... Hmm, remarkably, uh, there's not very many words. There's not very many words to describe the crucifixion itself. And they crucified him, right? That's what you're going to find in the Gospels. And they crucified him. And yet Mel Gibson could make a movie about it where it takes two hours and there's blood everywhere. What's that about? Well, Mel Gibson has inherited his perspective on the meaning of Good Friday from John Calvin and not from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Or more so from John Calvin than from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So here we have the penal substitution theory. Um, what can we say in favor of it? Well, we can say this, that penal substitution addresses the fundamental fear of many people. That is, a fear of an angry God. And so penal substitution theory preaches well. It plays upon people's sort of baseline fear of God. And since most people are afraid of God by default, the penal substitution theory solved this problem in the end by saying, look, you know, you're afraid of an angry God, but God has actually poured out his wrath in Christ. And so God's not mad at you anymore because he vented himself on this innocent Christ, right? Also, we can say in favor of the penal substitution theory um, is that it fosters kind of this comforting assurance of God's forgiveness. And again, that's why you have images like the passion of the Christ in your mind. You can be more sure of God's forgiveness of you because of all that blood and all that agony that Christ experienced. It may not be a healthy way to get there, but nevertheless, the penal substitution theory does yield um, these effects. What about the downside? Well, I have a very brief list for you. The list could be much longer if we were sitting over coffee. I guarantee you we can come up with lots more. Um, but we could say this to start. The penal substitution theory, to say it flat out, it maligns God's character by portraying God as violent and retributive. When Jesus has just got finished saying in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and be like your Father, your Heavenly Father. We love our enemies because that's what God is like. And then along comes this guy. It says just exactly the opposite. No, no, no. No, no, no. What Jesus said, forget that. I'm telling you, God is retributive, and that's God's payback that happened on Good Friday. It's to malign the character of God. The second thing I'll say is this. 
penal substitution, that theory, makes the call to imitate God dangerous, if not toxic. Think about it, everybody. When you're, not you, because my name is Lowell and I'm your friend, but when those other people meditate on the meaning of Good Friday for year after year after year after year after year of their spiritual formation, and the, the emotional um, atmosphere of Good Friday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, is that reality. That here's what God is like. His wrath against sin is so great that it has to be satisfied. And the only way it can be satisfied is to be, a, be poured out against an absolutely, completely innocent person. And it was brutal and it was grotesque. Because that's what God is like. Everybody, this is tragic. And, and so secondly, what, not only is that to malign the character of God, what we're saying is when that gets in your soul, when that's what gets in your soul that this is what God is like, then do you know what, what you, you and I become capable of? That means that I've got a gear I can go into where I am most like God when I execute payback because that's what God is like. And you know, again, the, some, here's some of the irony. Again, here's Jesus. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Listen, God doesn't strike out back against, he doesn't, pay, he doesn't play payback against his enemies. He loves his enemies. That's the true nature of God. Here's the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do you think that if Paul believed that God uh, was a God of retribution and retaliation, that he would call us to imitate God? No. He would, he would know. If that were the case, he would know that he was sentencing the world to nonstop escalatory retaliation. But Paul thinks he's doing the opposite. He thinks he's bringing peace to the world. He thinks he's being, bringing peace to the two people groups in his world who are the most at odds with one another, Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying, imitate God. Why? Because that, in Paul's mind, that means scandalous forgiveness. It means self-emptying love, just like we understand the, character, the nature of God to be through the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another. Because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever doesn't love God does not know God, for God is love. And so, we become like what we worship. This is unavoidably true. We become like what we worship. And so, to say it another way, if we, are, if we were to embed retribution into our image of God, then essentially what we're doing over time is multiplying retribution in ourselves. And so this is an additional unfortunate, and certainly if Calvin were here, he would say that's an unintended uh, consequence of this theory. And yet it's there. Maligns the character of God by portraying God as violent and retributive. 
and it makes the call to imitate God dangerous and toxic. This is a point where, and I mean this sincerely, this is a point where I wish we could and would and were sitting down with a cup of coffee um, and talking more about all of this. Because, you know, my hope, and I think what you can see, and, and we'll talk about this some more um, between now and uh, Easter, but my hope is that you can see, if you can go back to that image of a rock dropping in a pond, fact, image or word picture or metaphor, theory or motif or idea or storyline, my hope is that you can see that you know, the gospel is the rock that dropped in the mud. The gospel is what happened. It's the storyline. It's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. It's what I attempted to restate, that Jesus revealed the, the true nature of God. He was killed by the powers and then vindicated by God. That's the gospel. That's what happened. Okay. After that, I hope this is what you can see. With those other two ripples, you can... You can adapt and adopt and choose and, and discard and, right? Like, you can, you can be nimble with those other categories, right? Take each image and, and metaphor for what it says and try not to make it do more work than it has to do. Uh, and then with regard to theories, eh, it's a theory, you know? If there's helpful aspects of a given theory, then by all means. But if there are unfortunate, unintended implications, ditch them. Listen, God is good. Flat out. And so these theorists, and I don't mean to malign these people who come before us, they're, they're well intended. They are. They're shaped by their time and their place just like we all are. Um, uh, but but there's, nothing, there's nothing about a theory that saves. There's nothing about a theory that transforms and heals. It is the real-time Spirit of God who heals, transforms, and reshapes our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you, for our time together.